Welcome to another podcast with Father and Joe. Um, hopefully you guys enjoyed the first episode. And as we begin this episode here, Father, I actually want to begin on something that I missed from the first one, which was when we were talking about what led us to become, or led myself rather, to become part of the faith and the join in there. You had mentioned that you didn't come from a scolding background. and said You said you kind of got into it at the college. And I figured it probably makes sense to start with how you got there, because you've come all the way to the priest point, and um, that's pretty impressive. Hmm. Um, well, let me make a little comment about that. The uh, priests are not sort of more Catholic than everybody else, um, but of course the priesthood involves a commitment, and so that's one of the steps in our faith journey that's really important is that point of making a commitment that we make a commitment to follow the teaching of the church we make a commitment to then incorporate the that teaching the the example of jesus and the the logic of the gospel into our lives in more and more dimensions of our lives and then um, when we make that commitment public we make vows all of those are important steps moving forward. So, uh, your your comment about the priesthood, of course, is significant in those in those regards. Um, but that path from non-believer to a committed Christian is something that is important for all of our our listeners. That uh, how, how do we how do we make that pathway from being a non-believer or being an, an agnostic, not being certain, to the point of making uh, step-by-step commitment. We don't sort of jump from non-believer to totally committed uh, priest or whatever, but uh, what what do those steps look like? And for myself, I had no religious upbringing, so in one sense I didn't have baggage to overcome. Uh, I didn't have uh, I didn't have the notion that I, I I had some notion that I understood Christianity because I grew up in America, and although America has wandered far from Christianity, it is still pervasive. Uh, we still have lots of embers of Christian faith that remain in our culture. Although my experience of those embers of faith were primarily in the area of uh, a conflict between faith and science, or the attack against faith that it's kind of a crush, as Marx described it, an opium, an opiate for the masses. And those were my impressions of Christianity. And I didn't have uh, really any counterexamples. There there weren't any of my friends or teachers or coaches who really told me how important their Christian faith was to them, that that was something that wasn't just a, a crutch or that it wasn't something in conflict with science. It didn't require them to leave their intellect at the door. And so I was able to persist in my illusions uh, for... An, uh, going into throughout high school and then going into college. When I got to college, I met a number of uh, of Catholics. A lot of my friends turned out to be Catholic, and they were in honors, the honors program in science and engineering, and were well-adjusted people and uh, fun to be with. and uh, And they also went to mass mass on Sunday and that got my attention, and I thought, well, what, what's this about? So I did ask them at some point, well, what's, you know, 
what, what does your faith mean to you and what does it mean to go to Mass? And I remember asking them specifically, do you believe in God? And they said yes. And I said, and what, what does that mean? Do you, do you talk to Him? And they a little bit uncomfortably said yes. And then I said, and then what? Does He talk back? Mm-hmm. And then they got really uncomfortable and, you know, kind of changed the subject. And uh, so I wasn't, and I'm sure that I was pursuing it with a little bit of an edge and was probably threatening some areas that were personal and sensitive. Mm-hmm. And they also were not well formed in being able to witness to faith. And at the end of college, I was going to Mass, and none of them were. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, that was not none of them, but uh, several of them were not, and, and uh, maybe one or two of them half-heartedly. So their their faith was not uh, as as deep enough to be able to to share with me more of what was going on. But thank God there was uh, actually an evangelical Christian who uh, I had I didn't know at all, but came up to me on campus. I was sitting out under a tree during the summer reading a paper in computer science. I was a computer science major. And he started talking to me and then eventually asked me if I would be willing to study the Bible with him Mm one-on-one. And everything in me rebelled against that idea. I had no interest in studying the Bible one-on-one. I thought Christianity was a waste of time. Uh, I I just was not interested in doing that. And this is where the goodness of my parents who uh, are really wonderful people, but themselves had no religion to share with me. It wasn't that they had rejected anything or were bad people, not in the least. And in fact, the the virtue and sensitivity that my mother and father formed in me made it possible for me, despite myself, to say, okay, I'll give this a try. Mm -hmm. And then after saying that, to carry through with my commitment. My mother is a very sweet woman and patient and kind, and my father is a man of great integrity. And so their virtues sort of rose up in me at this moment and allowed me to give this guy a chance. This guy, David, uh, was the perfect witness. It's hard for me to imagine anybody else who could have reached me. Mm -hmm. He cut through a lot of my defenses because he was so humble and so authentic. And he didn't get sidetracked. I could have engaged him in debates and discussions about all different kinds of points. What about this? and What about that? And how do you reconcile these things? And he just kept focusing on the scripture and on the Lord and kind of sharing his faith with me and helping me to understand how to read the Bible as we read it together. And I had a docility in me that responded to his approach and I was able to uh, let it set aside my questions and allow him to to share with me what what he believed and and that was really the the, the critical piece for my conversion i I met with him basically weekly over the course of well actually for about three years, but after a year, uh, I came to the point as we we moved through our bible study eventually we we studied the Gospel of John. And when I read the prologue of John's Gospel, which begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing came to be that was made. 
and what came to be through him was life and this life was the light of men and it was not just the word became flesh and dwelt among us and no one has seen God except the only son God who has uh, who is in the bosom of the father from all eternity so these, uh, these words from the prologue of John's gospel somehow really seized my heart and propelled me forward. I had been sort of inching forward toward more commitment, but they really seized my heart and moved me forward. And the first commitment that I made was the commitment to believe. When I had done these Bible studies, I had question sheets to fill out, and the, the sheet would ask me some question about the scripture we had read. And in my mind, I always said, well, if there is a God, and if the Bible is the truth, then the answer to this question is whatever. And after reading the prologue of John's Gospel and really feeling internally, having a conviction that this is true, I was willing, and I was very conscious about this, I'm going to set aside the conditional. I believe there is a God, and I believe the Bible is the truth. And I'm going to throw in my lot with this and start walking in that direction. So that, that first commitment to take that step in belief was critical, and it was followed up just two weeks after my study of John chapter 1. We studied John chapter 3, which has that beautiful and well-known verse, for God so loved the world mm -hmm. that he gave his only son that all who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. And David asked me, point blank, do you believe in Jesus? And I said, yes, I believe in Jesus. And to then take that commitment and make it verbal, to express it out loud, was the, the next important commitment. Well, that's that's beautiful start. <laughs> wow. Um, not really sure how, how, how to respond to that after that. Um, you know, you, you go through a lot of the, the important stuff there, and you came from it from, as you said, without having any baggage, which, um, which I'm assuming that some of those friends you met in the beginning in the college course had, being already starting to go to, uh, you know, mass whenever they were beginning their college careers. And admittedly, I have some of that baggage. <laughs> um, yeah, if I, can, if I can just make a quick comment yeah. about that. The, uh, when I say baggage, the, the trouble is that when, especially the way that the faith is sometimes taught, you know, when you're teaching a seven-year-old or you're teaching a nine-year-old, you make simplifications. Mm -hmm. They can't handle all of the subtleties and all the fine points. Meanwhile, uh, in our educational system, we're continuing to build. We we start with arithmetic, but we end up in calculus or whatever. We develop a lot of those fine points, or we start with a basic understanding of of animals and reproduction, and then we end up proposing theories of evolution or something like that. We're, we're going into sort of deeper subtleties in our education, but somehow we, we lost, we never develop, further developed the subtleties in our faith. And so a lot of people end up rejecting at age 18 the faith that they learned when they were nine. Mm. And there's a big gap there because those simplifications never got fully expanded so that the, the richness of the faith, which is 
incredible. The faith is, is more rich, and the Catholic tradition is more rich than anything in our re relatively recent and shallow educational systems. Uh, science emerged out of a Catholic culture, not the reverse, uh, and they were never in, in conflict in the beginning. Uh, our, our whole educational system, I always like to point out, you know, if you've been to a graduation in college, you've seen the graduation robes. Those are monastic choir robes. Our whole university, our whole higher education system grew out of Catholic culture, grew out of Catholic faith. But we have this, this misconception that the Catholic faith is relatively shallow, that it precipitated the Dark Ages, and that then enlightened humanity emerged from the ashes of a completely failed religious system and is now shining its way into the modern era. But it's really not an accurate description. The, the richness of our Catholic faith and tradition, the richness of insight about the nature of being and more, things that are more fundamental than uh, just the structure of cellular biology are uh, just often overlooked and ignored. So anyway, when I say baggage, uh, I mean this uh, a kind of limited version of Christianity that is not fully representative of Christian faith, but is the kind of Christianity we could take in when we were nine. And then never uh, we never allowed to develop beyond that. And so we reject something thinking we know it when in fact we don't. That makes total sense um, from many vantage points, but starting with just the realistic life point, you got a three-year-old, what are you going to tell her? <laughs> you know, you got you to teach you, 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 she's not going to be able to comprehend the entire beginning of John that you just gave us so beautifully. She's going to understand people were bad, there was a flood, everyone got a boat, now they're happy. You know, you know, and, and I think that what you just described nailed me on the head and probably the majority of us because as I was going through and, and you know in the preparation of figuring out why we want to tell the masses about you know why this is important you know I look at myself and there is a lot of the word you use was rebellion against you know the, the version you heard when you were younger and I think that that's true but not necessarily in the gospel portion of it but in the way that it's applied in today's world and I think that for me that really kind of came to bear whenever I was in high school and then just became an, a larger issue down the road and essentially it, it starts with a point that I'm sure you, you get a lot of people asking you um, throughout your, your, your ministries is okay I understand just from a very realistic point of view you kill something that had a pulse it's no longer breathing because you killed it that is the definition of murder that is wrong that's on the Ten Commandments that's as basic as it gets abortion is bad alright so that's the, the, the fundamental starting point gotcha I'm there so then we go to the next element that the church is trying to do when you have kids you want to have them in a stable household so therefore you can have them have stable upbringings and you know the way it's supposed to be you have the, the woman counterbalancing the man to make them look good balanced healthy children I get that too I'm, I'm good with that and this is the part where I now have the disconnect that um, even in high school I didn't understand it don't understand it now as an adult if the goal is not to have essentially children 
who are running around in either of those two bad conditions, either in single family environments because the parents were, you know, in high school and they didn't know how to take care of themselves, let alone someone else. But at the same time, the only answer for decades, I get this, was, well, just don't have sex. I get that. That that was where technology was. But for my generation, that wasn't the case anymore. In fact, not only was it not new science or cutting-edge stuff, it was, you know, more or less common. You know, the girl takes this pill, she's not going to have a baby. You know, she takes this pill every day for whatever, and that's how it's going to be. And I got the end goal. You don't want to have kids with people, kids having kids, basically. You don't want to have children created into a world that isn't in the framework, because the framework makes sense to me. And therefore, getting back to the ultimate thing, you don't want people having abortions. The thing I never understood is, to have an abortion, you have to have a pregnancy. If you can take a pill or through other means prevent that, why would that not be something that's encouraged um, or at least explored? And my answer I was always given to me, and again, this might probably is the high school simplified version, you're too young to handle this explanation, is just don't engage in anything. While at the same time, that's when your body is telling you only to engage in that. You know, I went to an all-guys high school. I couldn't imagine what it would be like in a co-ed high school um, going during that point. Um, you know, it was hard enough without them in the building, let alone if they were sitting next to me all day. That would be rough. Um, so, I, so that being said, that to me is one of the great things I don't understand. And again, it's probably because, of, as you just said, we simplified it because it was easier to explain a simplified version to a 14-year-old rather than to dive into it. But sitting here now as a doll, I'm still not sure I get... I mean, I get that you don't want kids having kids, but I don't understand, since there are alternatives, where the problem lies. Well, you're... Uh... Let me share a little bit of my own journey with those things. Uh, mm -hmm. And... and... My basic proposition would be that as you come to know and love Jesus more, these things become more clear. We, we sometimes reduce the faith to these kinds of moral judgments that start to cloud a lot of things because it starts to push it also into, uh, into political categories and sociological categories. And then we start to line up with things that are not really lined up with Christianity. Um, I, my, my development in faith, reading the Bible, coming to know Jesus, uh, ultimately learning to pray, uh, another step in my own journey was moving from that point of intellectual belief that there is a God and that I'm going to find truth in the scriptures and in Christianity was to develop a real relationship with that God. And to the point that I could answer my, the question that my friends were unable to answer, do you talk to him? Yes, I talk to him. And does he talk back? Yes, he talks back. And uh, does he talk back in my ears? No. And does he talk back with, with clear words? Well, no. But does he talk back? Yes, absolutely. And coming to develop a relationship with Jesus helps to put a lot of things in. So I just want to make that point up front that 
in, in some way, well, again, so I'll, I'll witness to that from my own perspective. I, uh, the first step that I took was, am I going to be Christian? And do I have a relationship with God? Can I develop a relationship with God? So that was really my focus. And it wasn't affecting, it affected some, some other parts of my life pretty straight away. Uh, but anyway, it didn't affect all of my thinking, although I started to reevaluate my thinking then in light of, of Christian faith. Uh, I had the attitude in college prior to my conversion, uh, I don't even see why abortion is wrong. I felt like if is, is, a, is a child worse off coming into the world than being, you know, not coming into the world? That was sort of how I was phrasing it. I saw pictures of aborted fetuses, and I didn't even know how to comprehend. I didn't understand even what I was looking at. I didn't understand enough about the abortion techniques and what, what happens to the babies in the womb. So the girl I was dating challenged me about this at some point and said, well, what, what about abortion? You know, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I don't know. I guess I, it's not something I would promote, you know, but I guess if somebody wants to do that, that's their choice. And, and she then really pushed back on that and said, well, why, why would that be okay. I said, well, maybe there are children who, you know, would be better off not being born. And she said, there are a million couples that want to adopt children. I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah, let me show you the statistics. I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I said, well, what about a child that's, you know, kind of deformed or, you know, Down syndrome? Or She said, there are 100,000 couples that want to adopt children like that. <laughs> really? I said, yeah. And she showed me the statistics. I said, wow. So there, there are a lot of people who really want to take children and who can't have them. Or She said, that's right. I said, oh, well, that's, that, makes, that changes things. You know? And I also saw from her conviction, this really mattered to her. And so it forced me to face it a little bit. And uh, over time, I was able to see the logic as, as I pressed into the issue more, and it became less than just the political issue, abortion, period, to like what is going on here oh this this is a this is a human life with a heartbeat and that feels pain and uh that's that's going to be born so anyway as we push into those issues a little bit more it starts to open up again christian faith helped me to uh be open to to listen just to listen to what and i listened to the other side too i, I was involved in a debate at penn state with girls from the I don't know, national organization of women or whatever and and I heard what the other side was also saying. So just listening is, is so important. And then uh, pushing further into the question of, of artificial contraception. Uh, so on the one hand, are, are people just supposed to have as many children as possible? Let's, let's focus on the situation in marriage for a moment. Uh, well, no, even God didn't design the human body of the woman in such a way that she can just have as many children as possible. She can't get pregnant while she's already pregnant, for one thing. Uh, she can't get pregnant pretty much while she's nursing the baby, for another thing. There's a, a little bit of wiggle room there, but a woman who's, who's actively nursing, and usually a baby is nursed uh, two years, maybe a little more, generally a woman won't get pregnant while she's nursing. Uh, so God himself has, has worked out the spacing but furthermore, a woman is only fertile for a few days a month. And if he wanted her to be fertile all the time so that every sexual encounter led to a baby, he wouldn't have made her that way. Mm -hmm. So God has already put some spacing 
into the body of the woman, the church says, uh, well, why don't we use that understanding? And in fact, there are biological indicators, uh, the, the woman's temperature, the woman's mucus, uh, they're, they're actually very well designed. And they came specifically out of Humanae Vitae, that encyclical of Pope Paul VI, which reiterated the teaching that goes back to the beginning of the church, that interfering with the marital act putting a barrier and preventing or, or inhibiting the fertility of the woman is a grave disorder, but insofar as the woman is not fertile at certain times of the month, that's, that's how God made her to be. And so there's no disorder in working with her normal cycle of fertility. It's actively inhibiting fertility, which is the problem. Uh, so just like when someone dies naturally, we allow people to die naturally. But causing them to die in euthanasia is a problem. So mm -hmm. there's a difference between allowing the fertility that's already there as opposed to actively inhibiting it. So, um, but there are very good techniques to understand when a woman is fertile and then to work with the cycle that God has, has already given her. Now, furthermore, um, you sort of paint a nice picture about birth control pills, like, oh, you just take the pill and then it inhibits pregnancy. Well, first of all, it doesn't inhibit pregnancy. Uh, conception still takes place in some cases, and then it inhibits implantation of a, of a fertilized ovum, which we call a human being. Fertilized ovum is a human being. It's a, it's a zygote, and it's already the same thing as it will be nine months later. The DNA hasn't changed. It's just added nutrition in the meantime. So it prevents the implantation, thus causing an abortion. That's what we call it, an abortifacient. It's able to cause an abortion. Uh, secondly, the, the birth control pill is a level four carcinogen. It has, an, uh, women who use the birth control pill ha have an 80% higher uh, likelihood of getting breast cancer, which is the leading killer of women. Uh, so it's not just sort of like, oh, you just take this little thing. Now, thirdly, uh, some women have different problems with their cycle and different things. The birth control pill makes the woman act like she's fertile, and, and that's what it's faking. It's giving her the estrogen levels that, that uh, I'm, I'm sorry, that make it seem like she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so the woman's body thinks she's pregnant, and so she won't conceive, or if she conceives, it won't implant. Uh, and then at a certain time of the month, some of the, the pills are just placebos, and then it basically drops her as if she had a miscarriage. So mm -hmm. having been pregnant for most of the month, then it fakes a miscarriage, and then she expunges all of the, the tissue of the, of the uterus that's developed responding to, you know, uh, throughout the month. So it actually covers up issues that women can have that are not covered up but are exposed by the other methods of fertility awareness, uh, which have all been placed under the category of natural family planning, NFP. Um, so the birth control pill fakes pregnancy and then fakes miscarriage and just throws the woman's cycle into a mess. But furthermore, a woman is attracted to a different kind of man when she's pregnant than when she's not pregnant. Because when she's pregnant, she's looking for the big beastly guy that's going to protect her mm -hmm. and is not really interested in his finer qualities. And so it's not uncommon that a woman who's been on birth control pills is attracted to this guy like why do they keep hooking up with these dumb guys you know we see this go, going on all the time and then gets gets married gets off the birth control pills and is no longer attracted to him because mm -hmm. her hormones affect 
those attractions. Uh, now, when she is attracted to the, the, the guy with the finer qualities that she actually wants to live with the rest of her life, then when they get pregnant together, a whole lot of other chemistry has taken place um, between the initial attraction, marriage, and the pregnancy. So God has actually designed all of these things in a certain way to facilitate the bonding between spouses and to facilitate the creation of that environment, which will be the best environment in which to raise children as you said, with a man and a woman in the context of their mutual love in a stable marriage in thus a, a good home for those children to grow up in. So those are, those are just a few of the uh, theological and sociological reasons why the birth control pill is not good. Now, one last thing you said, well, you essentially resigned humanity to being animals. Like, we have these strong sex drives. We can't possibly be held accountable for resisting our passions and abstaining from sex. Well, I'm a celibate priest uh, and have been for 20 years, and I'm here to tell you that it's possible to abstain from sex. Uh, and I'm happy to say that. And I also know lots of young people who are able to abstain from sex. Sure, it's a temptation. There are challenges. And I think it's more challenging today than it was 100 years ago. But it is certainly possible, and I believe in the strength of humanity and the grace of God, that if we reinforce that, and we also reinforce some of the boundaries that used to be there without being cold or oppressive or stale, whatever, uh, to uh, yeah, oppressive, um, we can support young people also. Well, Father, I mean, that, that's certainly a lot of ways it wasn't taught to me whenever I was back in high school, um, especially that entire... Um, part about what what the uh, what the consequences of the pill are, um, you know, because in that simplistic version we were getting, um, along with the faith, a lot of those important details that you were going through to me, which I never knew. I mean, I, you know, I never looked into it. Um, really, uh, re really eye opening there. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I guess my point to the second part of, of the humanity, uh, humanity not being good enough is, I guess, uh, some people call it the realism in me. Like, I get that not everyone's going to be able to achieve that. And I get that there's probably a lot of people who could just don't try to because it's easier not to. Because I, I believe that there's a lot of elements of people that there will take the path of least resistance to get whatever outcome they want and that goes into a lot of different thinking that I have on a lot of different topics which we don't have enough time for right now but um, but I still believe that that's a, a, a part of humanity for better or worse and um, and, and this is this to me is a, oh sorry let me cut you off I just no I just wanted to uh, put a little footnote on that when when Pope Paul VI wrote Humanae Vitae he anticipated uh, some of this response and he said, you know, if, if we allow for artificial contraception, these will be the consequences. We will have a higher rate of, uh, of marital infidelity. Um, people will have more, uh, commit adultery more often. We'll have a higher rate of abortion because abortion is basically the backup. If you didn't avoid pregnancy through contraception, and contraception, artificial contraception is only about 93% effective. So if you're having sex every day on the pill, you're going to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, and he said we're going to have a higher rate of marital infidelity, higher higher rate of uh, of abortion, and and a higher rate of the, the 
the use and abuse of women because they will be treated like men, uh, as if they can have sex all the time and never get pregnant, and so men are just going to use them. Uh, and so a higher rate of divorce as well. And we can look 50 years later and see that all of those things have taken place. That makes a ton of sense when we look at it, given the, the, the adult version of looking at it, that, that makes a, a ton of sense when you look at it. Um, makes it kind of wonder why you don't try to tell that to, you know, people who are learning biology anyway, because um, that's part of high school, um, why, why this is the simplified road, because to me it's a natural invitation for rebellion. You're telling me not to do something that everything in society tells me is okay, because society is trying to sell the product. They're not trying to tell you why it's bad and you don't buy this, um, you know, but th that's a complete digression. Um, so, so I, I think that that's part of, at least for me, one of the challenges that people overcome and or need to overcome, that, that, that rebellion attitude. And it's not, I think a lot of people don't take it against Christ or the gospel, but they take it against the organization of the church. And, um, and since that's what we're here to try to accomplish, I think that this was a very good conversation today. Um, we will pick up with our continuing this or our next topic next time we're here. And um, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for your time here this morning, Father. And uh, wish you all a great week. God bless you. Good to be with you, Joe. Thank you, Father. You have a great rest of your day. You too.